0: Let me open us with a word of prayer, and then I will introduce our next text, and and I'll give you an idea of where we're going for the next couple of weeks. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the relative ease and peace with which we find ourselves this morning. Lord, each of us has issues, and there are trials and traumas in our life, but when we see true chaos, like the victims of the shooting... In California this week and now the victims of the fires that are raging, we realize that on any given day other people have bigger concerns than us. And I pray for all those who have lost homes, lost property, who have lost loved ones in these fires that are raging. Pray for the firefighters, no doubt from many states that are being called in to deal with this. And I pray, Lord, that you would show your mercy to the people who are still in harm's way. Lord, somehow I pray in all of this that some people would come to seek you, that you would draw them to yourself, and that they would come to faith, that they would hear the gospel in the midst of this. I pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who have suffered loss, and I pray for those who are unbelievers who are suffering loss, Lord, that you would show them mercy in the midst of this horrific circumstance. And Lord, as we direct our attentions closer to home, we we do have real issues. We have family members who are sick, and we have loved ones who have passed away, and we have children and other family members who are struggling. And so we just pray that you would meet us today. As we open up your word, I pray for our time in the word in Sunday school, and then in the main service, and then in the evening service. Lord, you Give us incredible opportunities here at this church to be fed the truth of your word. And I pray that we would today not be hearers only, but also doers of your word. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are embarking on the last section of what we refer to in 1 Peter as chapter 3. And as we got into 1 Peter chapter 3, there was a lot of carryover from 1 Peter chapter 2. But when a few weeks ago, or months ago, we got into 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, I mentioned to you that we were at the transition point in the book. The focus of 1 Peter really is to be holy. I've read the text over and over. Obviously, I taught in detail, but in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14-16, to 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. I'm convinced that that's the overarching theme for everything in this book. Peter wants us to be holy because God is holy. But as I alluded to, beginning in chapter 2, continuing through chapter 3, verse 12, it was really talking about daily life in various circumstances. How to be holy in relationship to the government under which you are submitting or where you are a citizen. How to be holy in relation to your employer. How to be holy in relation to one another in the marriage relationship, husbands and wives. So, all of that was wrapped up in the same focus. And our behavior in all those spheres is supposed to be evangelistic. Again, a text I've read over and over, First Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in things which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So we're to be holy in part because our lives are on display, unbelievers are watching, and we want them to come to faith, and our lives can help bring them there. But as I mentioned to you when I introduced the section that began at chapter 3, verse 13, and ran through verse 17, at 3:13, really, the book is transitioning. It's still talking about how to live holy, but it's talking to believers in a specific context when you are being treated unfairly for the gospel, when you are suffering persecution. Peter understood that many in the environment in which he was writing, the people to whom he was directing this letter, they were suffering hardship for Jesus Christ. And as we began, that's really the focus of the rest of the book. As we began at 3.13, really everything going after that is trying to tell believers, look, you can do it. To be encouraged, to be holy, even though life is hard. When I went through chapter... 3 verses 13 to 17, I laid it out in a six-part outline. I'm not going to reteach it, but just to remind you, I presented the material that you were preparing for a life of hostility because of Jesus. And we were supposed to be zealots for godliness. Normally, if you're behaving properly, you'll be left alone. Not always. So we embrace the blessings of hostility. If it comes your way, it's God's favor. It's all about Christ, elevating Christ in your heart every single day. We have to be ready to give a defense. We have to be ready to defend our faith. We're supposed to live with a clear conscience. And if we start to suffer, we just trust that God's will for us is better than any other option. So that's a quick summary of where we are. And really, what we're going to start covering today, which is beginning at verse 18 through the end of the chapter, verse 22, is building off of verse 17. 3.17 says, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. This mirrored, as I explained in a lot more detail when I was teaching it last week, this mirrored statements that he had already made to servants in relation to their masters. But the idea is that you don't get any credit if you misbehave for enduring the punishment for your misbehavior. But, If it's God's will and you suffer because you were doing the right thing, that's good. That's better. That's a blessing. That's all true. If you suffer for doing what's right, it's better. That's true, but it doesn't make it easy. Particularly when we are hardwired from the earliest points of our life, something about our sinful nature, but also something about being imprinted with the image of God where we would say, that's not fair. That's wrong. And I think, as I studied and I reread this passage, because I'll explain some things about the passage in a moment, I think Peter's ultimate point is that he's not trying to just say to all of us, suck it up. (laughs) Life's tough, get over it, move on. I think he understands that there's a sense in which, yes, we have to steel ourselves, we have to plow forward, but there's another sense where he wants us to be encouraged. And he wants us to not think flippantly about the circumstances, it really is unfair, but he wants us to draw strength from theological truths relating to unjust suffering. And again, he's going to appeal to Jesus Christ. Now, I just alluded to this, but I want you to turn back to chapter 2, beginning at verse 19. Because what happened there is going to be paralleled by what's happening here. And because of some issues in the text, I want to make sure that we see what's going on on a big picture level before we wander into the details. But Peter, beginning in verse 19, says, For this finds favor... If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. That's the key, suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. There's a lot of truth there. We, we spend a lot of time talking about that. Jesus' suffering, which was unjust, it's the ultimate example of unjust, was the source of our salvation. Through Jesus' suffering and death, we've been allowed to have fellowship with God the Father. So before we wade into this text, I I want to make clear that we see the big picture focus. Our text this morning is doing the same thing as that text in chapter 2. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, don't despair. Because Jesus' suffering and death shows that God can bring good out of seeming injustice. That's the thought I want you to be penciling in or putting in your mind. God can bring good out of injustice. In fact, sometimes God works miracles out of injustice. So that if you suffer for doing the right thing, if you suffer because you name the name of Christ, if you suffer for righteousness be encouraged because God can make something out of that. Now, why am I saying that before I've even read you the text? Because when I start reading the text, it's going to become apparent something that jumps out at you. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 18 to 22 are some of the most challenging verses in scripture. They have been the source of theological errors, heretical teaching, wrong views about salvation, and they have confused believers, unfortunately, for centuries. The controversy on these verses as we wade into it are so great that it would be easy to lose sight of the big picture. You could get so absorbed in the controversies and start running down side roads that you miss the big picture, which is very clear. As I study, I have a certain methodology of studying the Word of God. Every pastor does things a little bit differently. But I spend a lot of time reading and rereading the text, looking at it myself, trying to think through what questions do I have, what things jump out at me. I've got pieces of paper I could show you for every message I've taught here... ...where I have for each chapter of each book that I teach just written out... ...and I've got all my penciled-in notes. And I'm writing and I'm drawing circles and making references. I do that because I want to make sure I think about the verses... ...not just listen to what somebody else thinks about the verses. I want to wrestle with the text before I look to what do other experts say... ...what do other people say. But then, based on the book, and every book's a little bit different... After I've spent a lot of time doing that, then I start looking into commentaries. And the commentaries have different focus. Well, some commentaries are more focused on the Greek and the language. Some are a little bit more pastoral. Normally a John MacArthur commentary is more pastoral. Some are a little bit more technical. And what naturally happens is as I'm studying a book, for example, like First Peter, I just gravitate towards certain commentaries. After I've read enough and I've studied enough, I realize, okay, these people are consistently... Close to where I think I should be. These are the ones asking the questions that I want to be answering. And so for this particular study in 1 Peter, I really have been relying mostly on five commentaries. I have two additional ones that I will consult. But unlike any other passage in 1 Peter, those five commentaries are all over the map. Not on the big picture, though. Not on the reason this is in the text. And that's why I want to, before I wade into this, really be clear as to what's occurring. So here's how I'm going to approach all of this. I can't go down every side road on the text when I get into them. And the controversy will come later weeks, not today. I'm going to mention the controversies because some of you are going to have preconceived notions about these verses. Or some of you have studied Bibles and it may have something in the footnotes that you look at. Or some of you may have heard messages from good pastors dealing with these things. But I can tell you some of these verses are very, very controversial. So I'm going to just do what I normally do. I'm going to do my best to explain to you what I think it means. I will acknowledge some of the controversial aspects. I'll point it out because it's going to jump out at you, I think. And up front, I think it's possible, I would be almost certain, that on some minor points of these texts, some of the elders at Lakeside, we would not agree with each other. We would not disagree on anything essential to the faith, anything essential to the gospel. We're all absolutely in agreement. And I think if I synthesize, why is this in the Bible, we'd all be in agreement, but it's the details where we might have some nuances. But on the big picture again, it's here. So I'm going to read the verses now. I've got you scratching your head just enough to wonder what's he doing? To read the verses, I'm going to go back to verse 17. We're studying verses 18 to 22, but since the lead-in is verse 17, I'm going to read verse 17 again. And then we will get into, start explaining what's going on. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. I think even a cursory reading like that, you immediately see issues that are jumping up. And you scratch your head, and wait a minute, that's not really... But let me make another point. I'm just going to read verse 18 and verse 22. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. No controversy. That's very clear. So I'm going to submit to you that those bookends are the big point. But we've got to talk about what's in between, because God included it in the Scripture. But the big point, where there's no disagreement, is verse 18 and verse 22. So here's how I'm going to approach this. It's a simple enough outline. I don't know how long it's going to take me to teach this. But I'm going to go through two proofs that God can bring good out of injustice. Two proofs that God can bring good out of injustice because, again, these verses are written to believers who could legitimately say that's not fair. And Peter's trying to encourage them. He's trying to help them press on. So two proofs that God can bring good out of injustice. And the first proof is this. The unjust death of Jesus secured our salvation. The unjust death of Jesus secured our salvation. And we're going to spend our time this morning talking about verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh. That word for is the transition point. That ties us immediately into verse 17. It's an important connector. It's critical because remember, verse 17 was saying look, if you suffer for doing what's right, that's okay. It's better to do the right thing and suffer for it, but it doesn't make it easy. So, Peter, in trying to encourage believers who could understand and cry in their hearts, this isn't fair, points to the greatest injustice in human history. For Christ also died. Jesus' death on the cross, on a human level, was a travesty, it was unfair. It was unjust on a human level. The Roman legal system was certainly capable of corruption. If you read much history, it it was a cesspool of corruption, but there was an order to the system. There's a reason why they dominated most of the known world. There's a reason why their influence even today impacts the world. They had a developed and orderly legal system that kept all of the places that they would conquer and absorb in order. To this day there are principles that were in place in the Roman legal system that are still applied around the world. Particularly in Europe and even in the United States. And one of the normal rules of law And it's not unique to the Roman system, but it was very important. Part of the Roman system was that for someone to be convicted of a crime, there had to be evidence of guilt. Capital punishment was a normal part of things, but again, normally there had to be some evidence of guilt. Yet in Jesus' case, From a human perspective, despite countless people attempting to lie and bear false witness before the Jewish leadership, the reality is there was no legal evidence under the Roman system that would warrant Jesus' conviction and death. Pilate uttered some words that should have ended the entire thing with Jesus from a human perspective. Again, just in the standpoint of us walking around the earth and our human interactions. In John 18.38, one, two, three, four, five, six, six words in English, that it says in John 18.38, Pilate said to him, meaning he was talking to Jesus, what is truth And when he had said this, he went out, he, Pilate, went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. This was the Roman authority. He knew, even though he was a wicked unbeliever, he knew it's over. You got no evidence. You got no case. Even an unbelieving Roman governor who was corrupt and capable of all kinds of things, could see through the foolishness of the false accusations of the Jewish leaders against Jesus, and he understood this guy's not guilty. So, that's a starting point for encouragement for a believer who's experiencing injustice. Jesus' death. But in that simple statement that Jesus died, Peter includes a lot of theology that's supposed to be the source of that encouragement because Jesus' death was not just at a human level. Yes, it was an injustice. Yes, it was a miscarriage of justice. But we understand that Jesus had to die. And so Peter begins to relate some of the truths that are familiar to us, but again, they're... Encouraging for those who are suffering unjustly. So let's look at some of those truths about Jesus' death. For Christ also died for sins once for all. This is a profound statement that bears great relevance to anyone from a Jewish background at that time who understood the Old Covenant. In fact, this is truth that I taught on a lot in the book of Hebrews. For a Jewish person, someone steeped in the Old Covenant, if they were aware of the Old Covenant, sin was dealt with by animal sacrifices. And it was an endless parade of sacrifices. hundreds of thousands, probably millions if we could go back and count over all the centuries at different times when the tabernacle or the temple was standing at various moments in history when sacrifices were going on it was a normal thing and for a Jewish person it was part of the old covenant it was necessary and yet none of those hundreds of thousands or millions of animals dying could deal with sin Hebrews 10:4 For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But Christ offered the ultimate sacrifice that dealt with sin for all time. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 to 14, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all, very similar language. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all times, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. That's what Peter is saying. Christ also died for sins once for all. It was unjust from a human perspective, of course. Was he guilty? Of course not. But there was a finality to that sacrifice that dealt with sins forever. Jesus saying on the cross, John 19.30, it is finished. Did Jesus die an unjust death? Absolutely. Was it unfair on every level? Was it a miscarriage of justice and a perversion of a normally fairly stable legal system? Absolutely it was. But his death paid the penalty for our sins for all time, once for all, forever. It is done. Did he do it because we deserved it? Of course not. Peter says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. We could just add that to our business cards if we have them, just the unjust. That's us. Every one of us. If we were in a more formal setting, my actual name, I don't know if everybody knows that, Nicholas Joseph Trofamuck Jr., the unjust. What is your name? Just add that to it. That's us. The just, the perfect one, died for sinners like us. This is basic truth, but we should never forget this, even when we're enduring something that we could say legitimately that's not fair. In the big picture, we're guilty, he's not. And he died for us anyway. Romans three twenty three For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Just add that on the unjust, who sinned and fell short of the glory of God. The business card's getting ugly, actually, the more we go. <laughs> Jesus shares our humanity, but not our sinfulness. We understand this, but it's important when Peter lays out truths like this to be reminded of it, because all of this is wrapped up in the encouragement we're to draw when we're suffering unjustly. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. All of these truths about our salvation that Peter is reiterating in just a few words, these simple phrases are reminiscent of the prophecy Centuries before of Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs, beginning in Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourgings we are healed." All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has called the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. The just for the unjust. And He did it for a very specific reason. For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust so that He might bring us to God. One commentator that I read said, This statement indicates mankind's fundamental need. It's true. Our sin has forever separated us from God absent some outside intervention. The principle is explained in Isaiah 59:2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And if we didn't have someone to bring us to God, we could not get to God. Because in our sins, and our state of being unjust, we understand we're not ill, we're dead. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 5, the beginning of it, even when we were dead in our transgressions, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So, sinners, unjust, truly separated from God by our sin, and dead in our sin, such that we can't do anything to bridge the gap between us and God. No hope. Ephesians two twelve describes it well. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. This is what I want to just allude to. Having no hope and without God in the world. So because we were in that state, in our unjust state, Jesus suffered and Jesus died so that He might bring us to God. It's another one of those passages that makes it very clear we didn't come to God. He brought us. You couldn't bring yourself, you couldn't open the door. There was nothing you could do. If Jesus didn't do it, you wouldn't be saved. In Hebrews 2.10, he talks about the author of our salvation, talking about Jesus. I alluded to that same language last week when I was preaching out of Hebrews chapter 12. Because again, the word author is there. And the idea is a a pathfinder, a trailblazer. Someone who created the way to show you this is where you go. John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus showed how to get there. On our own, we couldn't even find Jesus. John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John fifteen, first first part of 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Peter is simply synthesizing all of these great theological truths for our encouragement. If Jesus had not suffered injustice... If Jesus had not been treated unfairly at the hands of sinful, wicked men, we would not be saved. We would not have a relationship with God. There would be no hope. God can bring good out of injustice. He brought our salvation out of injustice. Yeah, I'm going to cover the final clause of verse 18, but it's really setting the stage for next week. But I am going to point out some theological truth here because for all the controversy, there's deep theology in these few verses. So I'm just going to finish 18 and allude to this knowing that we're going to pick back up off this phraseology because of a contrast at the very, very end of 18. so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh. Again, the final part of 18 says, but made alive in the Spirit, and we'll jump into that next week. But for now, there was a heresy circulating. It's not clear that it was fully developed at the time of 1 Peter, but it's a heresy that is addressed elsewhere in the New Testament. And it's addressed by that simple clause. Having been put to death in the flesh. Here's the point. Jesus had a real human body. He really was fully man. So many times we can think, well, he couldn't understand what I went through. Yes, he could. Of course he was without sin. But he had a real body. That's why the scriptures can say he was tempted in all things as we are. He understood pain. He understood loneliness. He understood isolation. He understood the sorrow of the passing of a loved one. He understood being tired. He understood being hungry. He understood being falsely accused. He understood it's not fair. The heresy that was circulating was basically of a mind that all matter is bad. This is my paraphrasing, it's not articulate, I'm not trying to teach you the full depths of it. All matter is bad, so the human body is bad. Jesus is good, so he must not have had a real human body, because that would be bad. That was a lie from Satan. It was heresy. In fact, what I'm talking about can be seen in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. It says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. In other words, for his own reasons as part of his pattern of deception in the world, Satan tried to introduce the idea that Jesus didn't really come in a human body. Obviously, it's a lie. Satan knew it was a lie. But the spirit of the Antichrist was such that it was influencing teachers of that day, of that era, to say Jesus didn't really have a human body. Peter, whether he's addressing that heresy directly, is refuting it conclusively. Jesus had to die a real death in a real body to pay for our sins and we can praise God that he was put to death in the flesh. Was it unfair? Of course. But God brought ultimately our good out of that wicked event from a human perspective. The unjust death of Jesus secured our salvation. So that's the first proof that God can bring good out of injustice. I'm going to give you my second point and not start talking about it, but you could write it down. The second proof is this. The resurrection of Jesus declares His ultimate victory. The resurrection of Jesus declares His ultimate victory. And next week, we begin the controversy. So let me close our time in prayer. Let me ask you, pray for me. After a lot of study, I think I know what the text says, but I also know that I may change my mind by next week. (laughs) Godly men that I really respect are all over the map. I think I know what I want to teach. I think I understand, but pray for me to get it right. And pray for us not to be distracted from the big picture. Let me close our time with prayer, and then I think we still have time for gathering in our groups to pray. If you're visiting with us, we just divide up into groups and share prayer requests. Join whatever group is close to you. And then after you're done praying, we are done with our service. So, join me as I close this teaching time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the death of Jesus. Lord, I catch myself, even in articulating it, trying to be very careful. Because what was unfair and unjust and a miscarriage of justice from a human level was your perfect ordained plan. So I pray, Lord, that in my explanation, I've not misstated anything in that regard. We understand that you brought good out of that injustice from a human perspective. Jesus was not guilty. And yet your sovereign plan to bring us to yourself was for him to die, the just for the unjust. And we can only marvel and say thank you. We don't deserve it. It was unfair. But Lord, we thank you that you made a way for sinners like us to be reconciled to you. And I pray, Lord, that as we go further into this text, that we will be able to focus on the big picture. Which is that even in the midst of our own personal hardship, you can make good out of things that from a strictly human perspective seem unfair and unjust. We love you, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.